I am very fascinated by you. I, I look at you as a, a fellow journalist, but I also look at you as a trailblazer in music, especially black music, just because of your career. Before you hit the age of 21, you were one of the few on-air women during that time in the US. And you've earned the reputation of being a champion of and a preserver of black music. You're affectionately known as the godmother of Black Music Month, and you and your husband, Kenny Gamble, successfully convinced President Jimmy Carter to designate June as Black Music Month, and then you pushed it to make it official under President Bill Clinton. Now, if that's all you've accomplished, well, then great, you could retire and call it a day, right? Most people don't even do a fraction of that in their lifetime, but that's... That's actually the beginning of all of the things that you went on to accomplish. A radio DJ, um, you um, are a member of the National Museum of African American Music in Nashville, which is a little bit more of a recent project. But the part that fascinates me most, you've alchemized all of your experience to become an artist whisperer for up and coming artists. And you have used all your experience in pushing for uh, black civil rights, all of that kind of stuff. And so I want to talk to you about being an artist whisperer and how that first coalesced using your background of being this trailblazer. First of all, it is an honor to be with you. <laughs> Uh, as mentioned, I started in the industry. This is my 50th anniversary as a broadcast journalist. I started in radio and television and also print journalism. I still write for Hits Magazine, which is based in LA. I'm a guest contributor uh, for their February issue and their um, June Black Music Month issue. So that gave me the foundation having interviewed countless artists over the course of my career on television, because I used to work at VH1 on a show called The, the Soul of VH1, Vanessa Williams, the former first Black Miss America, the first yeah. Miss America who happened to be Black. Yes. Was host, I did all of the artist interviews. So I have this lengthy history, her story, interviewing prominent people. And from that, Almost 30 years ago, I started doing media coaching and artist development. A woman by the name of Sharon Haywood introduced me to the concept and said, you know, Deanna, you like artists. Artists seem to like you. You should do artist development. I was like, artist development? What is that? My first job came from Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis's record label. I worked with a group called Solo. And after that, I worked with a group called Vertical Hole. Angie Stone was the lead of that group. And my third client was D'Angelo. My phone and my emails have not stopped. I do not solicit. I have to be approached by either management or the publicist, and in some cases, an artist. But as the years progressed, I expanded my business to also do athletes and executives. I've worked with uh, presidents of record labels, CEOs of companies, uh, athletes, uh, basketball, football players. I've worked with Michael Vick. I've worked with Latin artists, heavy metal, lots of hip hop artists, pop artists, everyone from Justin Bieber 
to Alessia Cara. Yeah. So if you have a pulse. <laughs> if you have a pulse, you can work with Deanna. <laughs> exactly. So when you work with these artists or CEOs in the in the whispering, in the artist whispering business, is there a particular common thread or theme that makes people reach out to you for help? You would be amazed, totally surprised that some people who are public facing are actually very shy. Mm. They get on a stage, they can entertain, they can perform. But when it comes to what you and I are doing right now, the one-on-one, -on -one, the discourse, the conversation, to be able to talk about in journalism, the basic tenets are who, what, where, when, why, yeah. and how. So my job as a strategist, when I work with a celebrity or a high profile individual, is to help them address all of those questions in a more relaxed, conversational manner. So that's where I get called. And more often than not, I would say that the roster of my artists, I'm really proud, they seem to do pretty well. And if I see them not doing well, <laughs> or I pick up my phone and say, what was that? I saw your interview and boy, it was cringeworthy. So, but I do it with love. And I think that when people call me, they know that I'm going to treat their client with tenderness, with experience and wisdom that I have from 50 years of being in the industry. I've been to MTV, I've been to CNN. I know what it is to walk into those corridors, to sit in front of an Anderson Cooper or to mm -hmm. sit in front of a Gail King. Mm -hmm. So I help my clients to be able to sit with those individuals with uh, fortitude and clarity in delivering their messages. When D'Angelo, uh, having been your first client, what was that relationship like? And and it's my understanding that you guys are super tight today, even to this day. Great question. D'Angelo was actually my third client and I was very new as a coach, but I had had a lot of experience as a broadcaster. So I had interviewed and met, I'd met the greats by the time I worked with him in, in 1995. He had not come out. Brown Sugar was about to be released. Uh, and I want you to know that while the tenets of good communication are the same, each individual is different. You know, we're different. You and I have the same insides. We have heart, all our organs are the same. Our exteriors, our cultural experiences, how we were raised is different and unique, but the basics don't ever change. And so with D'Angelo, he was from Richmond, Virginia, uh, he was pretty shy, but by the time I met him, he was turning 21 or he just turned 21. He had won the Apollo Theater like three times. So it was obvious this man was oozing talent from every part of his body. And when you ask the question about the commonalities, the commonalities that we are all human beings. Some of us have uh, the capacity to learn quicker, faster and implement, and some not so much. Now, some clients, there's a specific issue. For instance, when I worked with Usher many, many years ago, he's dys dyslexic mm -hmm. and had never talked about it publicly. I see. I went to Atlanta, spent a week with him and went to the studio, went everywhere he went, I went with him. But the conversation was focused on how to discuss his learning disability that he'd had all his life at that point. Nonetheless, he had become a very successful R&B, pop, 
artist? When you have somebody like Usher or a client that has a learning disability, I mean, Tom Cruise, dyslexic also, that's also been something that he's struggled with. Is it about addressing that off the bat with the person you're speaking to, to take it off the table? Or is it about doing exercises of, of some sort, whatever those may be, to uh, address that so that it, it doesn't flare up or come up uh, during high pressure situations? So I also give my clients tools on how to deal with anxiety, stress, because a lot of people in front of a camera, they feel that. As I said, Barbara Streisand has a phobia of performing live. One of the greatest voices of all humanity, Barbara Streisand, who knew? She, she gets, even to this day, she gets anxiety about hitting the stage and performing. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, once she does, ooh, what? Uh, one of the artists I'd love to see perform live. But each artist is different, each individual. So for instance, when a publicist contacts me or a manager, or in some cases, an artist themselves, they'll say, I wanna work on just this. Mm -hmm. Then I have the newbies, the novices, they don't know processes, how to shake hands, how to make the eye contact, how to address the person that they're speaking with, how to engage in banter that is sincere, but appropriate for meeting a new person. And then being able to discuss what I call their prime time messages. As I said, the who, what, where, when, why, and how of their career, of the project that they're promoting. We have evolved so much technologically that back when you know Elvis was a big star, he had his manager handle all of those things so that he could just be the artist and do his thing. And he didn't need to know those things. Today, in lieu of having personal publicists, artists are taking that control back with social media. For some, it comes naturally, boom. And for others, they really do struggle with that, but it's a necessity now, isn't it? Like it is, it is a must. Correct. It has always been a must. Even in Elvis's day, he just happened to be an ultra charismatic, good looking, talented guy. And I'm sure in the beginning of doing interviews and doing public facing, it had to be a little, especially because he was being chased and fawned after and girls screaming and carrying on. I mean, that the dynamics of fame, I even have discourse with my clients about going from being an anonymous person to being a well-known, recognizable individual. There's a lot that goes with fame. I had a client call me one time, he was freaking out and he said, Deanna, every time I go out now, I'm being recognized. He had a number one pop record. It frightened him and put fear in him. He says, I have to hire a security person. He said, imagine where you can't go out your front door without being approached by people who love your art. How do I handle this? How do I handle being um, a, a super public person now? So it's part psychology, it's part counseling, it's critiquing, it's a combination of things that go into what I do with my clients. But, but psychologically, because I am very much interested in the human condition that, that comes with all of this, is something like that because the person might have imposter syndrome inside of them? I believe it's something that we all 
deal with at one time or another. I know I have faced it and, and on numerous occasions, I've had those moments. I remember speaking to a CEO, a woman who had just elevated to CEO. And she was like, Deanna, I'm terrified. The woman got a doctorate. I mean, she was accomplished on every level possibly from the outside a person could look at. So with her, I had to do affirmations and encourage her to remove what I call the negative tapes. We all have them. Mm-hmm. In our childhood, someone told us we were not good enough. We were not smart enough. We were not thin enough. We were not whatever. And the haunting of our childhood day and nightmares follows us into adulthood and it impacts our behaviors professionally and personally. It is so interesting how negative tapes and with various degrees of negativity that can affect us because in second grade, I had a teacher, uh, we were creating something and I was cutting and she got very frustrated with me and she took the scissors out of my hand and said, you don't know how to cut well. And then she finished the job for me. And it's not something that I'm traumatized about. It's not something that has changed the course of my path. But I do have to tell you, every time I pick up a pair of scissors to cut a paper for whatever it is that I'm doing, I it, it's an automatic flashback to her telling me that. And, and I, I mean, I laugh about it, but the fact that this is, you know, decades later and it has stayed with me. I think it, I think even the most successful individuals, if they are being candid, will tell you that at some point in their trajectory, they've experienced imposter syndrome. I know I have. When you mentioned about Barbara Streisand being terrified doing live performances and there's, you know, people who have, who have anxiety, I think sometimes we, uh, fear and anxiety and excitement are very interchangeable. And sometimes when that feeling crops up, it's hard to identify if that's a positive feeling or a negative feeling, because I know for myself, I moderate a lot of Q and A's, especially during Oscar season and Emmy season. And I do have my podcast where moments before, you know, my guest is going to come on, I get I do get these feelings right before I'm supposed to take the stage and microphone. And it's, it's part excitement. uh, But sometimes I think it's anxiety because I'm, I, uh, I, there's like a hesitation of like, Oh God, I just really want to go home. I really don't want to do this. Why did I sign up to do this? But then as soon as I take that step and as soon as I'm there and I just need to say the first word and then I am, I'm there. It's all it's all good. And I could be on there for the rest of my life. So here we go. I say to many of my clients, use the anxiety, use the nerves, let it fuel you, use it. So take what may be perceived by some and even that individual as negative and holding you back, use it to propel you. I have some clients where they get very nervous and they're fidgety and they're moving. I said, put the nervous energy into your foot where nobody can see it, tap your toes, move your toes, put the energy someplace else, or use it to fuel the conversation. Some of my clients will tell you that they have come across individuals who are not so prepared, clearly have not listened to their music, seen their movie, read their book, whatever. And they're just, they get an assignment and they're, and for my clients that come into those situations, I even prepare them 
with how to take the lead, because again, it's a valuable opportunity. It could be a big magazine. I mean, shame on a journalist who doesn't do their homework. Yeah. But there are cases where people don't. And I tell my clients, take the bull by the horns and you lead. Just make sure we get all our prime messages out. They're not together. That's not your bad. That's their fault. But it becomes very frustrating for artists, celebrities to encounter a person who is obviously oblivious yes. to whatever that person is promoting. You should be going for interviews that inform and inspire. To me, that's what I am working with. And I tell my clients, this is a collaboration. It's not a dictatorship. It's not me saying with a rule. I grew up uh, Catholic. It's not. Me too. <laughs> it's not like the nuns with the rules. It, the it's, not fear based. it's not fear-based. It's not fear-based. It's love-based. Like you said, lead with love. It's not fear-based. You're having a conversation with another beautiful human being. Yeah. Approximately 8 billion people right now on this planet as we are going around our revolutions around the sun. 8 billion human beings. And then we got what whatever exceeds billions, insects, animals. There's so much, there's an abundance of life force on this planet. And I'm fascinated every single time I encounter another human being. It's a unique interaction. Mm -hmm. It's life. It's living life in motion. And it's uh, it's all magical and mysterious and beautiful to me. So every yeah. time I work with a client and I have an opportunity to sit with them and they tell me stories about their lives growing up, their uh, their fears, their desires, because I also do goal setting with my clients. We do a five-year plan. Oh. Five years from now, where do you want to be? What are the goals? What's the vision for the career? It's a, That's very interesting what you said because about the five-year plan, because I think for the first time in our lifetime history, that kind of got upended when the pandemic hit. Whatever five-year plan we had in late 2019, beginning of 2020, all went out the window. Well, you have to be flexible. And it's not always a five-year because if I say to a, an artist or a client, let's do a five-year goal. I said, let's define your goals. I call it sky's the limit. Yeah. So I always put, I used to put time on it. Now I don't put time because of what you just described. We have all lost time. I mean, I wake up each day. I'm like, what day is it today? My time referential has gotten disrupted. And I'm sure yours, everybody yeah. that we know because we were in this abyss of the uncertainty in the pandemic and didn't know what the outcome we were trying to keep from getting this disease, this illness that was killing loved ones, people, yeah. we saw millions of people all over the planet were dying from this illness. So as human beings, you know, we're we're living with the fear of the unknown and that's part of what happened with the pandemic. So the the post repercussions of that period of time financially, emotionally, spiritually, mm -hmm. so many hits that people all over the world took. Yeah. But I said through the pandemic, I said I have a roof over my head. I was doing I was on the radio every day here in Philadelphia. I'm in Philadelphia. And I was on the radio every day doing my radio show from my living room. And uh, it was hard, but my job was to keep people informed mm -hmm. and inspired. Yeah. And that's what I did. So that's why we have to just 
put our arms around people who struggle, people who are down, people. And like I said, for me being on the radio specifically, because I've been doing radio 50 years, I love the honor, the privilege of speaking to masses of people. Because when you're on the radio, you're not talking to one person. You approach it that way. That's been my approach. But you know, intellectually, that you are speaking to hundreds of thousands of people. I used to be on the radio in New York. The numbers were higher. I was speaking to millions of people at one given moment every time I opened up the microphone. And I will tell you that it is a distinct privilege and honor that I always taken very seriously. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that God put in me the capacity to speak to other people and make them feel like I'm speaking just to them. Yeah, yeah. It's a gift and a privilege. I've also done a lot of crisis, which I don't do anymore. Don't like it. Why? Well, because it's very stressful. If you care about human beings, you it, it is stressful. You take on the burden of the uh, the defense. You take on, for instance, I had worked with an artist who remains nameless. His manager called me some years later and said he's being accused of rape mm. by multiple women in a Facebook chat. Yeah. And she was like, can you help him? And I didn't know the minutia of everything, but what I did know was that I am a rape survivor. I knew that there were several women, I mean, more than one, and I'm sensitive about questioning a woman when she says she's been raped. Yeah. And I didn't want to be on the other side of helping to defend yeah. someone who's been accused of something as heinous of, as rape. Yeah. And then even though I liked him and I worked with him years earlier and he was lovely, 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 lovely to me, I didn't want to be coaching him on how to respond to accusations of rape when in fact he could have been guilty. Yeah. I'm a defense attorney, I'm not a lawyer, and I did not want to put myself emotionally in that frame of mind. So I'm very selective at this point, And I have been for years about what I take on. And how do you do that in a way where if this particular artist you had worked with early, uh, years earlier and you did genuinely like him and have had only positive interactions, how do you decline helping someone without making it seem like you're declining because you feel he could be guilty. I remember when Oprah turned 50, I read an article that she did in her own magazine, the O Magazine, where she said at 50, she learned the most powerful word that she had ever encountered. And you know what that word was? What? No. It's empowering to be able to say no when you feel a no. Mm -hmm. and to and, and you know as you get older you grow you don't care so much about judgment <laughs> you know hurting people's feelings yes. you rather be honest on that note when you have clients that when I look at and go oh my god I can't believe that I hate that person you mentioned Michael Vick I get a visceral reaction because I'm a dog lover I'm a dog rescuer and pit bulls are my favorite breed. I've had them for decades. And when I hear his name, I remember the images. I remember reading all of the horrid things and I can't get that out of my head. 
I don't know how I feel about this man right now, decades later. Does he deserve a second chance? Do human beings deserve a second chance to evolve and become better? How do you work with someone like Michael Vick? We can also talk about Meek Mill, which is a different scenario. And there's been some stuff written about you having met with Kanye. And well, we all have feelings about him. How do you say we don't have to agree? We can disagree, but we've got this commonality of respect. How do you manage that when, when like, how do, okay, how do I manage that when I think someone is vile? How do I find that? It's, what you're it's talking about. challenging to say the least, but each person is responsible for how they interact with other human beings. I am the human being that's going to encourage people to be respectful, kind, and considerate. Now, am I always that? Not always. I'm, I'm, I said to you before, I'm perfectly yeah. flawed. So I don't always get it right. My clients don't always get it right, but more often than not, they do. And uh, I didn't work with Kanye. I spent a very interesting afternoon with him. Uh, I was contacted by Lior Cohen, his friend, and asked me to meet with him. And I did. And I spent the afternoon with him. We had a wonderful conversation. This was many years ago. Actually, I was called to work with Kanye on his first album. And he said he did not need coaching. He knew how to handle the media. And so I was at an event. He and I were online together. And I was like, I'm Deanna Williams. I was scheduled to coach you. And, you know, you turned it down and he was like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I got this. And I was like, okay. But and do you think he's got this? Does he? I think that he is an exception to the rule. Most artists don't want to be in the level of hot water or criticism that he's encountered. He's rather fearless in his opinions. I saw recently that in Hebrew, he apologized to Jewish people mm -hmm. for his anti-Semitic remarks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he does business with people who are Jewish. He, he has, he's done made millions of dollars with people who are Jewish. But again, it has been noted that he is bipolar. And so mental illness is also a factor, I believe, in some of the faux pas that he's been engaged in. He's a very bright man. He's very talented, but has said and done some stupid shit. How do you give grace to that, though? Well, you either, you have to, it, it really depends on your own personal forgiveness meter. Like when you mentioned Michael Vick, yeah. when I worked with Michael, Michael had just come out of prison and a former client of mine, T.I., who had been in and out of prison. Oh, yeah. And I had worked with him eight years while he was signed at Atlantic Records. Every time Tip was arrested, I'd get a call. So one day I get a call from Tip on my phone and he has Michael Vick on the other line. And he said, Deanna's my person who has helped me navigate the currents of my in and out of prison. You need to work with Deanna. And at the time, Michael Vick had gotten a BET show. So when we first sat down, he said to me, I don't want to talk about this dog thing anymore. I don't want to talk about it. And I said, Michael, and I'm sitting in his living room. I'm in his house, right? With, where his family, where he lives. And I said, Michael, it's never going away. Exactly. I understand that you just served two years of your life for this dog fighting and indictment and conviction. I said, but you now need to make it right with people. You need to be humble. You need to be apologetic. And guess what? It is never going away. Yeah. So the sooner you deal with the reality, 
Now he's been fortunate because he's been able to, he went back to, he played football again. He went back, he's a commentator. He still has a career where he's able to make money, provide for his family. But just like you said, you're a dog lover. You're big on pit bulls. They're your favorite. You hear his name and immediately all you can remember is that under his watch with his cousin, dogs were hurt and yeah. um, died. died. Right. So you have to make the decision on your level of forgiveness. Can you forgive? I, I have I've forgiven tons of people about things, but I don't forget. And in that not forgetting, it doesn't mean that I'm I'm just because you have to create boundaries. Certain people you don't want in your life because you don't agree with their beliefs or their behaviors, then you don't mess with him. When you see him on TV, you turn the channel. Yeah, you don't have forgiveness in your heart for an artist or an individual. Uh, you let it go. You, you <laughs> hold on to it and feel anger and let it upset your life about a person you have never met and may never ever encounter on a one-to-one. So I think in, in our lives as human beings, we need to embrace some level of grace with individuals who are not aligned with our philosophies, our lifestyle. You know, like I said, 8 billion, 8 billion people. That's a lot of people. <laughs> and we are not all philosophically aligned. Yeah. With your niche, earlier niche of, uh, you know, Black Music Month and elevating Black artists, how do you um, elevate uh, your community? I, I start with, I'm a human and I am obviously, I'm a black woman. I'm Puerto Rican and black, I'm Afro-Latina. My father had Irish in him from the slave masters. My father was black and mixed. Uh, so I'm a little United Nations over here. I have Native American Cherokee in me as well. Wow. I'm a human being, but I am a proud black woman and I advocate for my culture but I respect human culture. And it's just like you mentioned Black Music Month. I co-founded it 45 years ago with my ex, Kenny Gamble, who's my dear, 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 dear friend. We had three children and we're, called me the other night and we were on the phone hooping and hollering. He is still my friend and the patriarch of my family. Yeah. And um, so 45 years ago, Black Music Month. So I'm a proud Black woman, but Black music, is American music. It's American culture. It has roots. Its origins are from Africa, where Black people were kidnapped, taken from, Middle Passage, brought over here, over 400 years of free labor, free labor, which is what helped build the foundation of America mm -hmm. and America's wealth. Black people have never been accurately, historically credited for the contribution. I'm not saying they were the only ones because you had Chinese people working on mm -hmm. railroads. Yeah. You had immigrants, Irish immigrants helping yeah. to build cities. But the origins of America were primarily free labor, African people, African descended people. Uh, as I said to you earlier, we're not monolithic. And at the end of the day, it's I, I'm promoting American culture. So you as a Ukrainian origin woman who is now an American woman living in Los Angeles, black music is yours too. It's you from the moment yeah. you wake up in the morning until you go to sleep at night, you are absorbing through commercials yes. on the internet, television, cable, in your car, in your doctor's dentist's office, in your supermarket, you are consuming black music. Yeah. 
And so it's American music with origins from Black people. And I'm proud of that. So as an advocate, I will be an advocate. You mentioned the National Museum of African-American Music in Nashville, Tennessee, Fifth and Broadway. I'm a proud board member. We opened the museum, June will be three years. I encourage people to come and experience American culture as developed by Black people. And check this, the number one selling genre globally is Black music, Black music. And it's not just the music, it's the fashion that comes with it. It's the, the dance that comes with it. TikTok is American Black <laughs> culture. Its popularity is astonishing, but its origins are from Black people. We can't, I mean, people can dispute that if they want, but I got ears, eyes. I'm a pretty well-read woman. I'm a college-educated Temple University uh, cum laude individual. I'm on the board at Temple. Hey, I have eyes and I can see, and so can everybody else. You are consuming Black culture every day of your life. And not just us here in America, but around the world. And here, as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of hip hop music, it's big, not just in America. Mm. That means that in Ukraine someplace, and yeah. my heart goes out to you and to your people, to Thank my you. people as well, because I'm a yeah. human being and I care about the war. When I see it, I get very sad. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we're all related. Let's celebrate our commonalities, like I said before. Yeah. Let's celebrate, let's be a little bit more unified and lead with love. It may sound corny, but I believe it. And that's how I live my life. I lead with love. And on that note, I think that is the most beautiful way to end our conversation, leading with love. You started that, you started that at the top. You did mention that. And um, you brought it right back at the end of the day. That's what it comes down to. Uh, the, the, the core, that is just the basic. I mean, at the end of the day, with all this vitriol that is going on in our planet, we, we're about to enter into possibly a, a third world war. Yeah. It's really, yeah. really bad. You know, I wish that these leaders would just get out in the field one-on-one, -on -one, mano to mano, fight it out. Yeah. Right. Rather than all these young, your country, your other, all your young country, kids all these going young, a whole yeah. generation of young yeah. people. But yeah. I want to applaud you for the work that you're doing, in-depth conversation mm -hmm. with people making a difference other fellow human beings making a difference in yeah. our world. Thank um, you. And it was very, very lovely to connect with you, Deanna. Thank you so much.